We hope that this message encourages you today. For more information about us, please visit myfreedom.church. Morning. I've been carrying something as I've been studying through the book of Acts over the last few months, and I asked Mark if I could share, because God had given me something, a practical outworking of this, that I thought would be really good for us um, as a church and as a community together to do. And thank you, Stuart, for giving up your speaking slot this morning to make room for me. So if I asked everybody in this room, who is the one person in the Bible you'd love to meet, apart from Jesus, obviously, I'm sure we'd all have lots of different answers. And if you were to ask me that question, I would say Barnabas. I love the book of Acts ever since I was a teenager, ever since Pete and I were first looking to find our sort of life direction in Christ. We both love the book of Acts, and I love reading about Barnabas. So this morning I thought I would do a quick recap about Barnabas and then introduce something which I've called a Lent challenge or a Lent invitation, because his example has inspired me. So what do we know about Barnabas? Well, he was a key person, a key apostle in the foundation of the early church and the spread of Christianity. He's mentioned 17 times in the Acts of the Apostles and in the New Testament letters. So that's quite a lot of mentions. So Barnabas came from Cyprus and he was born into a Jewish family And they were Jews of the diaspora. They were Jews living outside of their homeland in Palestine at that time. But Barnabas was in Palestine at the time of Jesus, maybe because he was a student there. And at some point, he became a follower of the way. As a Greek speaker, because he came from Cyprus, which is a Greek island, he had a natural ability that was very, very useful to God. He was able to speak the international language of Greek at that time to non-Jews. And he was also able to speak the everyday Aramaic and Hebrew of the Jewish people. So Barnabas, I think, had a foot in two different cultures. He was able to cross barriers that divided people at that time. And God really used that. His family were descendants of the tribe of Levi. So Barnabas came from a long lineage of significant people, ancestors that are mentioned in the scriptures. Moses, Miriam, Aaron, Samuel, Ezekiel, Ezra and Malachi all came from the tribe of Levi. And as we'll find out, Barnabas more than lived up to his heritage of faith. Maybe he was about the same age or even younger than Jesus. And some commentators think that he was studying in Jerusalem with Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul, in the school of the famous Jewish rabbi Gamaliel during the time that Jesus had his public ministry. We can read about that in Acts 5 and Acts 22. Other scholars think he was one of the earliest disciples of Jesus, one of the 70 that Jesus sent out to teach about the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Now, Barnabas' given name was Joseph, but Peter and James and John and the other apostles in Jerusalem gave him a nickname, Barnabas, which means encourager 
or son of encouragement. And Acts 4, 36, tells us a little bit about how that took place. It says, all the believers were of one heart and mind. Selfishness was not a part of their community, for they shared everything they had with one another. Some who owned houses or land sold them and bought the proceeds before the apostles to distribute it to those without. Not a single person among them was needy. For example, there was a Levite from Cyprus named Joseph who sold his farmland and placed the proceeds at the feet of the apostles. They nicknamed him Barnabas or encourager. I can understand why the apostles were so encouraged by this. If you lay something at someone's feet, you put it at their disposal. You give up your own rights to it. And you add your faith and your confidence to theirs for the thing that God's asking you to do together. I remember one time when there was an offering taken up in our church for an overseas project that some national leaders wanted to birth. It was a very small prayer meeting when they came to speak about it. Maybe only 15, 20 people there. But a very big offering was given that evening. Later on, I found out that those leaders who'd been quite discouraged about their ability to get that project going, they'd agreed together before they came to our meeting. If we receive this much tonight in the offering, and it was a four-figure sum, we'll go ahead with the project. If we don't, we won't. And that night, they received more than a four-figure sum in the offering. They didn't say any of that in the meeting. They just presented the project. But by each person there being obedient to what God was asking them to do, the substantial amount was achieved. Just by our willingness as a gathering at that time to give and support what the leaders had a vision for, encourage their faith to go for the much bigger thing. And so that project eventually came to fruition. And it's now a Bible college teaching and training people from many different developing countries. So I think it's highly likely that the apostles already knew Barnabas' character well. And they loved and respected him by the time that they named him Son of Encouragement. He was pretty sold out, wasn't he? It's a very big deal to sell a house or a piece of land. Think what that would be like in today's terms, what that would be worth. He wasn't only giving up the value of his farmland, he was giving up any future income that he might have derived from it. Maybe it had a house on it, so he was giving up a place to call home. He was giving up financial security, and he was willing to do all of that. Why? Because his heart had been completely captured by Jesus. Not long after this, Saul had his life turned upside down as well by Jesus on the road to Damascus. We all know the story. He was partially blinded or temporarily blinded, probably shocked out of his skin. But two amazing servants of Christ took their courage in both hands and laid their fear on one side to help him. The first was Ananias, one of my other heroes of the Bible. He knew all about Paul's terrible reputation and he asked God not to send him but nevertheless he obeyed the Holy Spirit and prayed for Paul 
to get his sight back and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the second obedient servant was Barnabas. When that very new, very green, very passionate Saul immediately started preaching Jesus in the synagogue and got hounded out by the Jews, he took flight and returned to Jerusalem. But surprise, surprise, none of the Christians there wanted anything to do with him. They were afraid of him, quite naturally. This was the man that had had Christians seized and thrown in prison for blasphemy. This was the man who collaborated on the stoning of Stephen. They were terrified of Saul and they didn't want to know. They doubted that he was a true disciple. I'm not surprised. Maybe they thought it was a plot to betray them to the Jews or to the Romans but Barnabas, lovely Barnabas, came to Saul's defence and he brought him to the apostles. Now, at this point, Barnabas had nothing to go on except his encouraged faith to see the potential in Saul and to recognise the miracle that God had done in his life. Maybe God gave him a word of knowledge about Saul. Maybe he'd already seen tax collectors, Pharisees and other unlikely converts transformed by Jesus. So Barnabas was willing to take a punt on Saul. Whatever motivated Barnabas, he spoke up for this rank outsider, this oddball, this zealot, this most unlikely, maybe dangerous convert. He built a bridge for Saul into the church. I wonder if I could do that for somebody. I wonder if you could. And because of their love and their respect for Barnabas, the church in Jerusalem accepted Saul. Imagine how encouraged Saul was by that. He went from persona non grata to an accepted part of the fellowship. From then on, Barnabas mentored coached and supported Saul and I'm sure encouragement was a big part of that process as well. So Barnabas was one of the first of the early church leaders to understand that the mission of the church was universal, that the good news of Jesus and the kingdom of God wasn't just for the Jews but for everyone whatever their nationality, their citizenship or faith. He argued forcefully that non-Jewish male converts, for example, didn't have to be circumcised or any of them follow Jewish dietary customs of the law. As Stuart was just saying earlier, Barnabas recognised that Jesus had cancelled the code of the dead law in Christ. One of the earliest and leading Christian communities to spring up outside Palestine in those early years was in Antioch. We can read about the Antioch church in Acts 11. How did the gospel get from Palestine around the Mediterranean area to Syria? As we all know, because of the religious persecution they were experiencing from both Romans and Jews, the believers scattered in the early years of the church, to surrounding countries. And as most of them were originally Jews, it was in some ways easier for them to hide amongst the diaspora communities as migrant workers, let's say, and earn a living there. So Antioch is a strategic place in the history of the Christian church. God is strategic. Do we know that? 
There are two Antiochs spoken about in the Bible, which can be a bit confusing, but this was Antioch of Syria, an ancient Greek-speaking city and a thriving Roman settlement with a large Jewish community. This is the place where the followers of Jesus were first called Christians. Antioch was an important port on the Orontes River. It's the river that flows through Lebanon, through Syria and Turkey still today, running close to the city of Homs that we've all sadly heard about because of the bombardments there. Because of the Orontes, Antioch was on the trade route between China in the far east and Rome, the hub of the Roman Empire in the west. Josephus, the first century historian, described Antioch as the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was also another city close to the Mediterranean, not far away from Cyprus, where Barnabas had his roots, or from the city of Damascus, where Paul became a Christian. So I can see why it was a strategic place for God to establish the church. From Antioch, Christians would travel all over the world, taking the good news with them and influencing them who came to that port and went out from there all over the world. It's a bit like Leeds, really, isn't it? So that's why it was important to strengthen the thriving, growing church there. People who weren't Jews were getting saved. Converts from Cyprus and other places in the region were travelling there and sharing their faith with non-Jews in Antioch. There was phenomenal growth. People were becoming Christians in droves. This was quite unexpected to the apostles back in Jerusalem. So when they heard about what God was doing in Antioch, they sent Barnabas as their emissary, their representative, to teach and support the church. And Barnabas went, tells us, in Acts 11. I was just thinking about that song we were singing earlier. If the wind goes where you send it, so will I. Barnabas went. He went with the wind of the Spirit. Acts 11:25 tells us that when he got there and witnessed for himself God's marvellous grace, he was enthused and overjoyed. He encouraged the believers to remain faithful and cling to the Lord with passionate hearts. Barnabas was such a people person. He was such a people encourager. He just couldn't help himself. But he was full of faith as well and encouraged them to have faith. His encouragement was highly proactive. It was enthusiastic. Come on, stay faithful, stay passionate. Don't be sidetracked by anything. Cling to the Lord. And here in this same passage, we have almost as an aside the loveliest tribute to Barnabas. He was a good man, a blessed man, full of the spirit of holiness, and he exuded a life of faith. What a tribute. Imagine having that on your gravestone. He was a good man, a blessed man, full of the spirit of holiness, and he exuded a life of faith. So the church in Antioch was going great guns with very rapid growth and supernatural gifts and ministry taking place among them. So much so that it was so much work for Barnabas to disciple all these people. He had to get help. So who did he invite, do you think, to come and help him? That rank outsider, Saul, 
who by now was known by the non-Jewish version of his name, Paul. So Barnabas opened the way for Paul's reputation and ministry to rise amongst the Christian community with the apostles. That's also in Acts 11. So one of the things I love about Barnabas was he wasn't afraid that his own position, his own reputation and ministry were under threat from Paul. He was totally secure. The word says that they ministered together in partnership. He was willing to work as a team without any ego, carrying on mentoring, partnering, and encouraging Paul. He befriended somebody who had been widely mistrusted, who other leaders were wary of, and he promoted Paul in their eyes. He recognized the calling that was on Paul's life, and he breathed life into it. His enthusiasm, his hard work, and his faith blew life, momentum into the church and into Paul's gifts and anointing. He encouraged God's anointing on others, Barnabas did. He had a huge generosity of spirit, I think. I have to ask myself, am I looking out for other people's gifts? Am I breathing on other people's anointings to promote them? Am I encouraging the men in this church, the women in this church, our younger people, the children and the grandchildren among us, for example? Barnabas was the perfect partner for Paul. Working together, they strengthened each other's revelation and understanding of the gospel as being good news for everyone, not just Jews. Barnabas knew how to leave the old thing behind and embrace the new kingdom, the new world order that God was bringing. I think he must have constantly encouraged God's heart as well. Do you know God wants to be encouraged? He is encouraged by us and we can always encourage him more. I think Barnabas encouraged God as he was willing to embrace a new thing that God was doing in the earth, which went way beyond his love, his original love for the chosen children of Israel. We always have to remember that what we're looking at happened from the other side of the book. They were living in it. And these were very exciting, revolutionary and scary days. It was in Antioch, for example, that Barnabas and Paul first publicly decided to preach to non-Jews, the Gentiles, as they called them. And this wasn't the only invisible wall they decided to knock down. What they preached was totally radical. You can just imagine them standing together on some synagogue steps in the city and declaring that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, Jew or Gentile. There are neither slaves or free. There is neither male or female, for you are all one. In Christ Jesus, Galatians 3 tells us that. This was dangerous stuff. This was revolutionary stuff. They were teaching against the accepted order of things, against the Jewish religious orthodoxy of the day, against the cultural and patriarchal norms of their society, against the injustice of the Roman world order that kept many oppressed peoples in the chains of slavery. Their commitment to the equality of all in Christ was countercultural, 
And they were encouraging the church to be countercultural too. So encouragement can sometimes be provoking and challenging, not just nicey-nicey, comforting. They provoked. They provoked the believers to change. They provoked society to change. And it was the Antioch church that also sent Paul and Barnabas out on their first big missionary trip together. They travelled all over the region, teaching, strengthening the churches that were springing up everywhere and preaching to those who didn't yet accept Jesus as the Messiah. So Acts 14 talks about what happened at Iconium, a city about 60 miles away from Antioch. They went, as they always did, to the synagogue and preached there with such power that a large crowd of both Jews and non-Jews believed. Some of the Jews refused to believe and they began to poison the minds of the non-Jews to discredit the believers. That's how the enemy tactics work, isn't it? Lies, deceit. Yet Paul and Barnabas stayed there for a long time preaching boldly and fearlessly about the Lord. For he backed up his message of grace, with miracles, signs and wonders performed by the apostles. In Greek, the word for grace here is charis. And that means that which brings delight, joy, pleasure and sweetness. They spoke and the Holy Spirit brought grace, delight, joy, pleasure and sweetness through miracles signs and wonders. That's what God's grace brings to other people's lives. When I look at my own life, I'm not sure I'm always a good carrier of this grace. When when I speak, I always give Holy Spirit the opportunity to bring grace. Maybe that's one of my growth points for this Lent. So they took John Mark, a young disciple on the missionary trip with them to help and support their work. But unfortunately, he decided, and we don't really know why, to leave them halfway through. John Mark was related to Barnabas, either his nephew or his cousin, we're not quite sure. But Paul, in particular, was very upset about this. Like Barnab- And then later on, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark on them, with them on another trip, and Paul disagreed. He didn't want to take John Mark because he felt he'd let them down before. Barnabas, on the other hand, wanted to give John Mark another chance. And in fact, they had a violent disagreement, the scripture says about this, and they separated from each other over it, going their separate ways in ministry. Barnabas went with John Mark on another mission trip, and Paul went with Silas. It makes me incredibly sad when Christian people feel that they can no longer walk and work together like this but it happens amongst very determined and strongly convinced people sometimes so I can't comment on the rights and wrongs of the Paul Barnabas argument perhaps they were both right or perhaps they were both wrong but to me Barnabas's willingness to give John Mark another chance shows that part of Barnabas's encouraging ministry was to be a reconciler The work of reconciliation is the work of a bridge builder. And that's who Barnabas was. Just as he had once defended Paul to the apostles, he now defended John Mark to Paul. And that young man went on, most scholars say, to be the mark 
who wrote the Gospel of Mark and who was later reconciled with and much loved by Paul. Barnabas kept, kept Mark in the faith, in the fellowship. So after that, there isn't much more written about Barnabas in the New Testament. Paul writes about their ministry partnership in 1 Corinthians 9, that they both had to earn their living, plying their trades as they travelled around working with the churches and evangelising. In Galatians, he also mentions that even Barnabas got tempted back into putting Jewish laws before grace when arguments about eating with non-Jews came up yet again. I don't know, maybe through loyalty, shared history, Barnabas supported Peter, who was afraid of offending James on this. But Paul chides Barnabas about it, maybe because he's gone back on the revelation that he once held dear. What this says to me is, like us, they were living in confusing times. There are still sometimes beliefs that fiercely divide Christians and people can get heated or blown about by different views but we need to stay listening and to stay open to what the Lord is saying and doing because that doesn't always look like the thing we're used to or the most religious or the most conventional thing I like the fact that the apostles weren't afraid to challenge one another Paul challenged Barnabas and I'm sure Barnabas challenged Paul lots of times and the truth is that that's a bit part of being an encourager too. So after this, nothing more about Barnabas. Um, tradition has it that he was reputedly murdered, martyred in AD 61, stoned to death by violent Jews who were opposed to the message of Jesus. But we don't know for sure. All I know is that when he got to look, the Lord face, look at the Lord face to face afterwards, he definitely would have heard the well done, good and faithful one enter into your rest. Sorry, I've got two pages stuck here. So I for one love and honour the memory of this great encouragement hero of a man and find his example a huge provocation to be an encourager too. And as I've been reading about his life over several months now, I found the Lord has really provoked me and, and talked to me about being more of an encourager too. And I started to write down some things from each, each passage that I could pray into or say or do. Those include encouraging myself on some days as well. And these are the actions uh, that I would like to share with you in the form of a Lent challenge. So your invitation, should you choose to accept it, is to do 40 small actions, one a day, around the theme of encouragement, one for each day in Lent, which starts on Wednesday the 26th of February, immediately after Pancake Day, and finishes on Wednesday the 8th of April, just before Easter and chocolate. Usually, the Christian tradition is all about being giving up things for Lent, to fast from meat or sugar or chocolate, etc. But instead, I'm inviting us to do some encouraging actions instead. So in a minute, you'll receive an envelope 
with 40 small challenges written on the paper slips. Thanks to Cathy for copying all the sheets and to Pete for spending all day yesterday cutting them up into slips. Now, don't look at what's in the envelope in advance. Don't read them. Just take the slips out of the envelope and put them in a jam jar with a lid. Something like that, maybe, yeah? Every day, take one challenge out and do it. And every day that you accomplish one, I'm inviting you to put 5p in the jar. By the end of Lent, you should have a jar with no papers in it, just 5p. When you finish with your challenge each day, you can put them back in the envelope, maybe for next year. So I'm also asking you to kickstart the challenge by putting 50p in five pence pieces. Who hasn't got five pence pieces hanging around in a drawer somewhere or a jar in the kitchen or something? Yeah? They're small things, but important things. The 50p in here to kick off with is to symbolise our faith that we can do this We're willing to go on a journey with God in our own lives, a journey of growth, just like Barnabas was. And that as we do, God is going to multiply the blessings. I believe that. I believe this is a kingdom thing, encouragement. It's what the Holy Spirit does. He encourages us. And I believe as we set out to actually practice our encouraging side during Lent, God is going to multiply that. Just to finish, this is what Isaiah 58, verse 6 says. Is this not the fast that I have chosen, says the Lord, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens and to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? We can do that through encouragement. I think the life of Barnabas shows that encouragement is spiritually powerful. Do you agree? So at the end of Lent, the plan is that we would all bring our jars back with our 5p pieces and collect them up. And what I'm going to do is invite our young people, our youth, to decide what they want to do with that money, what good cause they want to give it to, or how they might want to multiply it and give more. But I'm going to work with them on that. And it would also be brilliant to hear about any testimonies. You know, what does God do? through your obedience, through your encouragement. So come to the meetings ready to just share with each other and encourage us more by what God's doing. It doesn't matter what order you do the challenges in, okay? Some of them have got scriptures attached to them so you can look them up. Some have got quotes from people that I found as I was going on this journey. But it doesn't matter which order you do them in. Okay, so you can do them in any order that you like. Um, Any questions about the challenge? Everybody clear about what we're going to do? Yes, Pete. Yeah, pick them out randomly. Otherwise, you might, if you see them all in advance, you might think, oh, no, I don't fancy that. You know, I'm put it to the back of the jar. Noah, would you, would, shall I ask Noah to do it? Would you like to just go round and let everybody take an envelope? <coughs> 
So thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for taking up the challenge. Uh, we'll bring the envelopes next week as well, and maybe because I won't be here next week, but if there's anybody who doesn't know about the challenge, you could share with them what we've spoken about this morning and encourage them to take part as well. I'm excited about what God will do. Have any of you heard of Bob Goff? He's a writer, amazing man of God. I think he's a modern-day Barnabas. He's such an encourager. He's such a man of faith. He just goes out on completely big, random adventures for God, and God honours it. And um, if you want to learn more about encouragement, I would really recommend any of his, any of his books. Love Does, Kathy's saying to me. He's got several books. He's got lots of podcasts. He's on Instagram. He just is somebody who really, really speaks to me of encouragement. He's a great gift to the body of Christ. So, yeah, if you want to know more, have a look at Bob Goff's stuff. Whether you are listening or watching, we hope you enjoyed this message. Please consider giving us a rating on your preferred podcast provider. If you're watching, please hit the subscribe button and click the notification bell so that you never miss another video from Freedom Church.